Revelation chapter three, beginning with verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, and this is Jesus speaking to John. He's dictating what Jesus is communicating to him. Write these things, says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I see your works. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength to kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as we've done, in order for us to maximize our understanding of what Jesus is communicating through this letter, we'll look at two things. First, the backdrop of the actual church here in the first century, there in Philadelphia, as well as establishing some historical context. Because as we've noted, each of these letters represented a specific time period uh, of church history, loosely. It's hard to nail down specific start and stop dates, but in a general sense, Jesus, through these seven letters, is addressing his church, the church as a whole. So the backdrop, the church of Philadelphia. Originally, the city was built in 189 BC by Eumenides II. The city was named Philadelphia for just that. Apparently, this guy really loved his brother, brother and his would-be successor, a guy by the name of Adatellus. Philadelphia means brotherly love. It's the city of brotherly love. He loved his brother so much, he built this city and dedicated it to his bro, who, by the way, had a nickname, Philadelphos, or one in whom his brother loved. So this guy and his brother were pretty tight, and he named a whole city after it. Context. Philadelphia is small, not a very large city, but it was very wealthy. It was prosperous, mainly because the city was situated on an important trade route that connected the east with the west. It was a border town. The final stop before you entered civilization from uncivilization or uncivilization into civilization, this border town of the empire. Historically, Philadelphia was known as being the gateway to the east. And it was because of her strategic location that the city, especially during Grecian times, had been an outpost for the spread of Hellenistic culture. In a way, Philadelphia was a missionary center for the Greek way of living. So this city sat at the border of the east and west, the gateway of the East. It was an outposting for the spread of Hellenistic culture, a bit of backdrop context. That this seems to be representative of what we would known as the missional church. Now the Protestant Reformation, which we looked at last Sunday, it was successful in bringing much needed theological reforms to the church. There was a drawback, if you recall, from last Sunday's message. Though there was a changing of the mind, there wasn't much of a changing of the heart. There was a reformation of thought, but not a revival of living. The Protestant churches fell prey to some of the very same trappings of the Roman Catholic Church. Understand, Protestantism, it did not yield churches that had or were returning 
to the original commission of the church given by Jesus, which was what? To take the gospel into the world. Because this church, the Protestant church, much like the Roman Catholic church, had this interdependency with the state. The Protestant church has failed to be missionary minded. And instead we're internally focused. And yet, two significant historical developments would change, would challenge the church's inward perspective. The first occurred during the late 15th and 16th centuries. It's known as the age of discovery in the hopes of procuring areas of untapped wealth. Portugal and Spain invested heavily in nautical exploration around the globe. I'll give you two quick examples. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered the Americas. In 1498, just a few years later, Vasco da Gama was the first to successfully sail from Europe to the subcontinent of India around the tip of Africa. Incredible, during the, this age of discovery, nautical exploration. Now, the second significant event is that seeing the advancements and the wealth of Portugal and Spain, not to be outdone, the English got in on the action. They set sail, set to the seas, hoping to establish their own colonies and their own networks of trade. In the late 16th century, we would see the rise of what we know as the British Empire. Not only would the Brits colonize the Americas, but she would become the largest empire in history with a footprint in almost every continent, Africa, India, China, Australia, New Zealand. By 1922, the British Empire, quote, held sway over 458 million people. Now, that's not a lot of people today in today's world, but then it represented one-fifth of the world's population existed under the British flag. At the peak of power, it could be said that the British Empire was one on which the sun never set. As a result of these two developments, the age of discovery and the rise of the British Empire, not only did the European church awaken to an exist, a world that existed beyond her borders, but they were awakened to a world that existed without the knowledge of Jesus Christ, a world that had not been exposed to the gospel. But additionally, the empire would also, in addition to awakening this reality, it would provide an infrastructure by which missionaries could be sent across and around the globe. In essence, what Roman roads did for the spread of the gospel in the first century, the British naval routes accomplished during the 17th and 18th centuries. And yet, just because there was a renewed awareness of a world beyond their borders, and just because now there was an infrastructure that would make traveling the globe much easier than ever before, still, something needed to happen in the hearts of the people of this dead church, this Protestant dead church. And what would take place a tipping point, so to speak, would be what's known as the first great awakening. It took Protestant Europe, British America by storm in the 1730s and 1740s. As a result of a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is significant, isn't it? Because as we look at what, what made these Protestant churches dead, a lack of dependency on the Holy Spirit, and yet the Spirit was poured out, an awakening occurred, a passion developed, and preaching. Men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, would herald the truth of God, the church infused with the Spirit. Not only would the church itself recognize her own need for a genuine relationship with Jesus, but she would also become concerned with the fact that the rest of the world also needed that same relationship. Enter a simple 
British cobbler by the name of William Carey, who had been deeply touched, impacted mightily by the teaching and writing ministry of Jonathan Edwards. In the 1800s, Carey would take the gospel from Britain to India. He would become known as the father of modern missionaries. I love his perspective. His perspective was simple. And speaking to young men and young women who wanted to also be missionaries, to take the gospel, unsure where to go, Carrie would simply say, to know the will of God, well, all you need is an open Bible and an open map. Carrie would write, when I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. But among so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on the sure word would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. In the mid-1800s, there was another Brit. And, and there was a lot of people you could reference during this time period. I'm just picking out those uh, that have been of impact to my own life. But there was another Brit, late 18, mid-1800s, by the name of Hudson Taylor. William Carey took the gospel to India. Taylor had a passion from a young age to take the gospel to China. During the 51 years he spent in the Orient, he and his organization, the China Inland Mission, would, quote, be responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to the country who began 125 schools and directly resulted in 18,000 Christian conversions, as well as the establishment of more than 300 stations of work with more than 500 local helpers in the 18th uh, in the 18 provinces of China. Now, what makes Hudson Taylor interesting is that William Carey might have been the father of modern missions. No man has done more to impact our methodology of missions more than Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, when he went to China, he saw the way that missions worked. You as white Anglos going to a foreign land continued to dress and act like white Anglos, and then you were confused why this nation of people didn't care what you had to say. Hudson Taylor's model, and it was radical at the time, was that if you were gonna go into a foreign land with the purpose of carrying the gospel, he took seriously Paul's admonition to become all things to all men. And thus Hudson Taylor dressed like a local. And he, sp he spent time learning the local language and he ate the local cuisine, everything that he did was to break down anything that would be a barrier between him and the people he had been called to reach so that they could hear the gospel. Carrie and, and Hudson Taylor, incredible men. Now, while there's no doubt that this period of church history is characterized by the missionaries who would carry the gospel into uncharted parts of the world, <laughs> another guy, it's hard to miss, David Livingston, taking the gospel into Africa. It should, though, be pointed out that this great awakening, it did two things. Not only did it, it stir up a passion for people to take the gospel into the world, but the awakening and then those that would follow would produce an evangelical emphasis in the Western world brought about by biblical exposition and Bible teaching. In the mid-1800s, while these guys are traveling the world carrying the gospel, men at home were preaching the gospel. Men like Charles Spurgeon, who would pastor the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. His contemporary, D.L. Moody, a world away, preached with the same passion, the same tenacity for the lost in Chicago. William Arnott preached tirelessly in Scotland. The late 1800s, Andrew Murray would evangelize his native South Africa. As you enter the 1900s, 
these great men of faith would give way to, to more great men of faith. Men like J. Oswald Sanders or A.W. Tozer, J. Vernon McGee, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, even our own Pastor Chuck, Chuck Smith. Even today, this Philadelphian church, this missional church, this movement, it's still alive and well. Understand, if you're part of a church any Protestant church that faithfully preaches God's word, relies solely on the spirit of God and has a deep commitment to reach the lost, for Jesus, you're part of this church of Philadelphia, which makes what Jesus is writing so applicable to you and I, because I'd like to be part of this church. Let's start with the criticisms. In regards to his letter to Sardis, Jesus had nothing nice to say, right? But in this instance, as was his letter to the persecuted church of Smyrna, Jesus has nothing negative to say. Nothing negative, nothing critical, Jesus writes to this faithful church of Philadelphia. There's no criticism. Instead, Jesus' letter is chalked full of promises. Now, before we look at these promises, first notice how Jesus introduces himself. Look at the text. He says, these things says first, he who is holy. This phrase translated he who is holy is actually one word in the Greek. It means a most holy thing. In the description, Jesus here is identifying, he's emphasizing his distinctiveness because he's holy. By definition, he's set apart from everything else. He's unique, he's special, he's holy. He continues by saying that he is true, he who is true. Also, one word in the Greek, meaning not necessarily the opposite of what's false, but instead the opposite to what's fictitious or counterfeit. It's not as though it's the opposite of false, but instead Jesus is emphasizing a genuineness an authenticity beyond being true. And he is the, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying that he's the real deal, that he makes good on his promises. He's set apart, he's holy, but he's trustworthy, he's genuine. He doesn't offer a bill of goods refusing to make good. He's the real McCoy. Jesus also refers to himself as he who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now, this is a direct quote from a passage in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And from the context of that passage, we understand that the key, the key of David that's represented here signifies authority, the authority of a chief steward, that you have the key and you can open and lock and shut and open, that you have complete authority. Once again, in this detail, Jesus is emphasizing to this faithful church his complete and absolute authority. Not just over today, but over tomorrow. Not just over heaven, but also hell. Not just over the sky, but over the earth. That Jesus is fully and utterly in control. Now, what makes this distinct what makes this description distinct and unique is unlike the others we've seen in the letters. Nothing in this description we find in the original description of Jesus laid out in chapter one of Revelation. It's different. No mention of, of him being holy or true or having these keys. It's a different uh, revealing of himself, which kind of indicates that, that there was something about himself that was totally unique and specialized for a faithful church. Now, why would he do this? Well, whereas all the other descriptions of Christ in these other letters intend to either provide uh, encouragement or, or rebuke, exhortation, in this instance, it may be that Jesus is emphasizing a different aspect of his character with the specific intention of not providing an encouragement or some type of rebuke or a path forward, but instead to substantiate and validate 
the important promises that he's making. He's set apart, he can make them. He's true, he'll make good on them. He has the authority, he can issue them. So what are these promises first? If you look at the text, Jesus promises to quote, make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, to make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. This phrase, worship before your feet, does not mean what you might initially think. Jesus is not promising that if you're faithful, one day you're gonna get worship. That's that's not gonna happen, nor is that what's being communicated. You're like, yeah, be in heaven with Jesus and people be at my feet worshiping. About time, someone recognized my worth. No, 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 no. that's not what's happening. This word worship, it implies a kneeling or prostration of oneself to to make homage. The idea is, is to express respect. This phrase, before your feet, was used to signify the act of a disciple coming to the feet of a master, placing himself under the authority, the teaching, the counsel, the instruction of that particular person. To come before one's feet, to pay off. It it was an act of respect, yielding oneself to a teacher. Basically, Jesus here is promising the faithful who carry the gospel, remember the context, through the open door that even their staunchest enemies, those of the synagogue of Satan, will ultimately come to a point of recognizing the error in their thinking. Keep in mind that Jesus is opening a door no one can shut. And sometimes he opens a door and we look at it, we look who's on the other side, and we think there's no way. And yet Jesus here is promising that even our enemies, even the people we think there's no chance, if Jesus opens a door, walk through it. Even when the opposition may look great, he's promising that his work would be greater. Secondly, Jesus promises to, quote, keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Now let's unpack this. Specifically, Jesus is promising here to keep this church from the hour of trial. Okay. Now, the use here of the definite article, the, implies he's not speaking of just any old trial or a trial, but that Jesus is referencing something very significant. Additionally, it would be very hard to place this trial into any previous period of church history. Now, now how can we reach that conclusion? Consider that Jesus says that this trial, the trial shall come upon the whole world. Understand no point or at any other period since Noah's flood has there been a global judgment or trial brought about by God. Even in the first century, during the persecutions that were incredibly brutal and intense, they were not global. Even within these letters, one church in one city might be experiencing immense persecution, Smyrna. But other churches like this one, maybe not so much. Even in the first century, they were regional, not global. And yet this is the trial, not just a trial, a significant trial that will take place on the whole world. Also note that the trial is specifically designed to, quote, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now this word dwell, it's significant and it's telling because it speaks more than those who just reside somewhere. It's not that you just live there. The word dwell, it means to inhabit someplace or to settle it, in a a sense, to make it home. Pastor Joe Foch observes that this Greek phrase, earth dwellers, or those who, quote, dwell on the earth, it always speaks of unbelievers 
and the book of Revelation. From this point forward, you'll find it six different times and in every instance speaking not of the faithful, but of the unfaithful, unbelievers. Now, with all of this in mind, because the promise is that Jesus will keep this faithful church from the hour or literally the time of global trial of the wicked. We can see it, or it's at least my conviction, that Jesus is promising to rapture this faithful church from the earth before the trial begins. This promised deliverance seems to substantiate a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, which would also then explains why Jesus, what does he do? He admonishes, he exhorts these believers, behold, in context to these things, behold, I'm coming quickly. Now this word quickly, tacky, it doesn't mean his coming would occur soon. That's often how we see the word quickly. If I'm coming quickly, you think, oh, he'll be here in five minutes. I gotcha, quickly. In the Greek, this word doesn't mean that his coming will occur soon, but rather when he comes, it will occur suddenly. It'll happen rapidly. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul would say, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That word caught up in the Greek is raptura, which is where we get the word rapture from. To be with them together in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He promises this faithful church that that church will not be left to endure this global trial of the wicked, pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Thirdly, Jesus promises, and there's, this is lengthy, so we're just going to kind of blaze through it. Jesus promises that, quote, he who overcomes, or, or those who remain faithful, he will make a pillar in the temple of my God, he shall go out no more, that will have a purpose for all eternity, will be pillars in the temple of God in heaven, I will write on him the name of my God, that, that, that we will be owned by God. There's a sense of ownership, purpose and ownership. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of his city, the new Jerusalem. Our citizenship will be in heaven, which comes down out of heaven from God. I will write on him my new name that our identity will be found in Jesus. And I think that that's kind of the coolest, trippiest thing. Like Jesus promises this church a series of really cool, wicked looking tattoos. Like I will, if you're faithful, I'm gonna give you a set of tattoos that you'll wear for all of eternity and totally love, which means if you have a problem with tattoos, you have a problem with heaven because they will be there. And you also have kind of maybe a problem with Jesus because he also sports some tattoos. I don't wanna go on a tangent. I don't have tattoos but it's cool if you do, I, I'm leaving space for these. The name of God, the name of New Jerusalem, and then Jesus's new name. Like that's, I don't, I don't actually know what to comment on that because we're not told what that new name would be other than that, that he'll have one. Finally, Jesus closes his letter exhorting this church to hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Now understand, Jesus is not saying they needed to hold on to what they had out of a fear that someone could come along and snatch their crown away from them. Like you don't have to be afraid of me stealing your crown or you stealing my crown. That, that's not what's being communicated. Instead, Jesus is encouraging the faithful not to quote, discard, or let go of the opportunity, the open door he set before them for if they did that opportunity and thus the potential reward that would come along with that opportunity, Jesus would extend to someone else. If, if you're being called to children's ministry and the Lord puts that on your heart or you're being called to usher ministry, whatever that happens to be, 
and you, you feel the stirring and you see an open door, if you walk through it, there's a reward for that. I hope you know in heaven, there's a reward. But here's the deal. If you don't walk through that, if you resist that moving, you come up with some, I'm just too busy right now. You know, I just, eh, not my thing. Then someone else will minister to those kids. Someone else will walk through the door. Someone else will fill the role. And in doing so, they will receive a reward. Do you want to receive it or leave it for someone else? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, let's conclude it. As we've done, what is Jesus saying to us? Now, if you've been with us for any period of time in our studies through these seven letters, you will notice that I skipped over something significant. A component that we haven't addressed, and that is Jesus' commendation of this church. And this is not an accident. You see, every church, and, and person for that matter, when you're reading through these seven, if you had to pick one that you really want to be a part of, like you don't go with the dead church, unless you're morbid, and we should talk about that at some other point. But like, what church, you, you don't go with Laodicea, you know, I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth. Not, not one I wanna associate with. But faithful, and then you get all these cool promises and you get some cool tattoos. I wanna be in that church. Like that's the church. Everyone wants to be part of this church. I mean, how could you not? No persecution, no scathing criticisms, nothing but glorious promises. Sounds really appealing, doesn't it? I want to be part of the Philadelphian church. I mean, who wouldn't want to have the Savior, God, King, Jesus himself examine your church or your life and reach the same conclusions? I want to be found faithful. And yet, don't forget, please don't forget, that the letter was not written in a vacuum. Jesus is the high priest, and he's been walking in the midst of the lampstands. He's been examining each church. And after his evaluation of this Philadelphian church, he found them faithful. Why? Because they had been faithful. If they hadn't been faithful, he wouldn't have evaluated and concluded they had been faithful. Now that might seem like a very elementary principle, but don't overlook it. If you want to be found faithful, the key, be faithful. This church had as part of their very DNA, characteristics Jesus found commendable, characteristics that to be part of any faithful church or person Jesus concludes to be faithful, you need to have them as part of your life as well. Like in conclusion, and kind of as a way of applying the substance of this letter to our church, like what can we take out of it? I wanna take our, re our remaining time and just examine the essential characteristics of a faithful church by looking at the commendations Jesus had for the faithful church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit wants to say. First, a faithful church is mission-minded. Jesus begins, look at it. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. Now in context, this door, why is it open? It's open because Jesus had opened it, right? I've set before you an open door. I've kicked it open. It's yours. It's there. Which is why, subsequently, no one could shut it. God opens a door. No one's strong enough to shut the door. In a sense, Jesus is commending this church for taking, advantages, taking advantage of the opportunities that he had placed before them. This church was faithful because not only were they keen enough to recognize the opening. Jesus says, see, do you see it? It's an open door. Not only did they see it, but they proved to be faithful to go through it, to engage it. Now, what opportunity had Jesus provided this church? Well, by looking at the backdrop of the church in Philadelphia being this outpost for the spread of Greek culture, and then the context of the missional church, the spread of the gospel, across the world, the return of faithful and biblical evangelism and preaching in local communities, it would seem the open door was the opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission, to be missionaries of his kingdom throughout the whole world. In Colossians chapter four, verses two and four, Paul 
He speaks of the open door and he places it in this particular context. He asks the believers, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mysteries of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So Paul prayed for an open door and this church had been given one. Like, I hope you understand this. Please pay attention. If you wanna be found faithful, listen. When it comes to sharing the gospel or opportunities to minister, to someone that might be in need. It is not your job to open doors. At no point did this Philadelphian church open the door. Jesus did. They were just faithful to go through it. Truthfully, we're miserable door openers. Have you ever kicked down a door in your life and that worked out well? Like where everything is stacked against you, everything is resisting you, and you're just determined to go through that door anyway, right? It never, it never works out. It's never good. Like it's an open door. You see, your job is not to open doors. It's to look for the doors that Jesus has opened and then be willing to go through them. And you know when it's an open door. They're often pretty obvious you get to work, plant down in your cubicle, and the lady in the cubicle next to you is bawling her eyes out. And you're like, what's, what's going on? My life's falling apart. Oh, have a wonderful day. Like, what are you doing? You're like, yeah. I have been praying for an opportunity to witness to a coworker for like the last three years, but I, I just didn't think that it was real convenient. Or when a situation arises with a neighbor, like you don't have, that's the great thing about being faithful. You don't have to like force anything. You just have to look for the opportunity and be faithful to take advantage of it. This church did that. And if you wanna be found faithful, you too need to have that particular outlook. Secondly, a faithful church, mission-minded, spirit-dependent. Jesus commends them. He says that you have a little strength. Now, it would be very easy to see that as kind of a, a backhanded compliment, you know? Like, thanks, Jesus, we've got a little strength. It would have been nice if we had maybe a medium amount of strength or a lot of strength, but Jesus is like, you got a little bit, an itsy-witsy-bitty. Like, the thing about it, is a statement that you have a little faith. It might actually be one of the greatest compliments that Jesus gave to any of the churches. You see, the reality was this church, they were weak enough that their entire strength and dependency couldn't be found in themselves and instead had to be found in Jesus. Like th this church was very aware of their inability isn't it true that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty? That when, when I am weak in my weakness, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, he's strong. That though Jesus was crucified in weakness, he lives by the power of God. Therefore, we also should be weak in him that we should live with him by the power of God? Like, please, friend, the key to your faithfulness is not found in your strength or resiliency, but rather the extent of your dependency and the spirit's strength and sufficiency. The issue is never the amount of strength but it's rather the source of that strength. His sufficiency in the place of our insufficiency. Paul would say, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being of ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God. Jesus, Jesus would say, 
My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. You know, the sad thing is that there are many people who are simply too strong for God to use in any type of meaningful way. They've got a bunch of strength. They're strong. But the strength's coming from the wrong place. Like you can do nothing in your flesh that's right or righteous. All must come from Christ alone. This church was faithful. And they were effective for one reason. They were humble and self-aware. Humility. Humility simply means to have a proper perspective of oneself. Pride's the opposite. It's when your perspective of yourself is inflated. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. For those who constantly come to the cross, pitch a tent at the cross, saying, I can do nothing because you've done it all. I don't have to do anything. I need your power. Their unableness, and I know that's not a word, it just worked. Their unableness made them very able to rely entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll say it again. Their unableness made them very able to rely entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus would say, you have a little strength, but right on, right on. Why? Because they were depending on the Holy Spirit. The third thing, a faithful church is bible Centric, mission-minded, spirit-dependent, Bible-centric. Jesus commends them for, quote, keeping his word. This word has kept. It means not to obey, per se, but to attend to carefully. It wasn't that this church was faithful to be obedient to God's word. Jesus is instead commending them for how they approached the word itself. From the historical context, this Philadelphian church, this missional church was faithful because there was an awakening brought on by the Spirit of God, but there was also something else very important. The church cared and taught about God's word. They cared about God's word. It was placed back onto this pedestal that it had, it had been lost. Understand Historically, revival never happens apart from the fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Like what our world needs more than anything is an awakening. The outpouring of God's Spirit in a radical way that it changes the world. But many people fail to observe this and that it's the singular thing that brings about this outpouring is a faithful, unashamed, teaching of God's word. Every great spiritual awakening was initiated by a return to teaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Look at it historically, you'll find no other examples. This church experienced a great awakening brought on by the spirit of God because they had been faithful to preach the word of God to the people of God. And, and I hope you understand there is a drastic difference between someone who preaches the word and someone who preaches from the word. There are a lot of churches who preach from the word. They take a verse here, a story there, a nugget here, a nugget there, and they present them. A topical message based upon one verse or one thought, one chapter, one idea. That's teaching or presenting a concept from the word. It has its place, but it is never a substitute from opening the word and allowing it to teach itself by going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, expositionally. I hope that's why you're here. That you come here because you know you're gonna be taught the word, not from it, the word and that you place a high priority of that. Charles Spurgeon, he said this concerning God's word. 
If you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he worketh by his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it is actually brought to pass, you can only discover it by his word. Now mark this. And this is where Charles Spurgeon gets heavy, like only he can. By this you shall know whether you are a child of God or not. By the respect that you have to your father's word. If you have small respect for that word, the evidences of a bastard are upon you. Where is God's word in your life? If you're to be found faithful, it must be preeminent. It must supersede everything else. So you're to be mission-minded and spirit-dependent, but a faithful church is Bible-centric. It's the center of everything. But fourthly, a faithful church is also Christ-like. Jesus commends them for not denying his name. Here was a mission-minded church dependent on the Holy Spirit who held God's word in high esteem. It now only seems logical, right, that Jesus commends them for their faithfulness to represent his name. Now understand the idea behind the phrase not denying. It speaks to more than just a decision for Christ in like the face of opposition. The idea was that through their actions, they were a church living up to the high standard of the name for which they represented. That they took being a Christian, that the name of Christ and the fact that they represented that name, they took that very seriously. If you're to be found faithful, it is paramount that you and I, that we take seriously the name for which we represent. You know, my dad would always say, you know, Zach, what you do, it doesn't just reflect on you, but it reflects on the name Adams. It reflects on your mother and I. It sets precedent for your siblings that you represent more than just yourself because you have a name. And thus, if we did something inappropriate or something wrong, my dad would simply say, Adamses don't do that. I can't do it. Adamses don't say can't. There's something about a name. But you bear, friend, if you're a Christian, the name of Christ. You bear the name of Jesus. At some point, physically, you'll actually bear it. Now, you represent it. Thus, the way you live, the way you act, the words you speak, the way you deal with your neighbors or your friends or the guy who cuts you off, that lady at the McDonald's drive-thru who gets your order wrong every single time. How you handle all of that represents Jesus. Whether you like it or not, the idea of witnessing, we're a witness. It's not something I do, it's something I am. I am a witness. The question is, am I a good one or a really bad one? Your actions just don't reflect you. They reflect Jesus. His standing in our community rests on the way you represent him. Finally, a faithful church is rapture ready. Jesus says, you have kept my command to persevere. Now, the context of this admonition is the rapture of the church. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. So in that context, it seems unlikely Jesus is referring to a perseverance and the face of a persecution. Instead, it seems Jesus is commending this church for the fact they had patiently endured as they waited for his coming. The word persevere means a patient, steadfast waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for a promise, his command. In John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus promised, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, note the promise, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. Sadly, there has been a move within Christianity to minimize the expectancy we should have concerning the rapture. And I know the rapture sounds like a really trippy, weird concept, and it is, but that doesn't make it less true. 
The scripture presents it, it teaches it, it communicates it. We can talk about that for another time if you'd like. But it's all over scripture. Now, yes, there's not a chapter, the chapter of everything you need to know on the rapture. But it weaves its way through Jesus' teaching ministries, through all of the, the epistles, to all of the letters, to the book of Revelation. Some reason that the church, if we're so focused on Christ's return, that we'll end up being ineffective when it comes to reaching our communities, dealing with needs today, service. The expectancy of Christ's return produces an ineffectiveness. And I could not disagree more passionately. See, I believe a church's expectancy of Christ's soon return and therefore the trial that will follow should not yield inactivity but be the greatest motivator that every single day we have counts, that it matters, for it could be our last. Honestly, as illustrated by this letter, it would seem effectiveness and expectancy are not mutually exclusive. This church was faithful and they were expectant. Jesus says, Luke chapter 12, and we'll close with this. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Do you want to be found faithful? As a church, do we want to be found faithful? If we do, we need to be faithful. To be mission-minded, to take advantage of the open door, to be spirit-dependent, to walk in grace, even if that makes us outlaws. To be Bible-centric, that it's the emphasis, the heartbeat. That we could be rapture-ready and Christ-like to minister to a world around us 